Hello, and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with a social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and I am a hospice social worker. Today, I have with me my mother, who has the giggles. Hello. (laughs) All right. Well, hello again, everyone. It's been a month. We took some time off, and we're back. Hope everyone had a good meal on Thanksgiving, and hope everyone's surviving the holidays. Yeah. So this episode, I really want to get <coughs> mom to stop coughing. I have allergies, so I apologize mm-hmm. ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to have to edit all this out. So today's episode, I want to talk about an episode of Hidden Brain that I listened to about two weeks ago. And it was titled The Ventilator. I started to tell you about this. But the there was a couple other little stories in there. There was a lady that had an iron lung and she had been on it for 58 years. And Seriously? Seriously. And she said, you know, so many people come up and say, I'd never want to live that way. And she said, you know, you're wrong. You'd want to live. And that was kind of the very beginning. And the... The story that ran through the episode was about a nurse and her family. And she had always been very adamant that she did not ever want to live on tubes, to be Mm. hooked up to anything. And so the the premise that I kind of think they were trying to get at, although they stuck more with the personal story rather than details, was about living wills and advanced directives and how we choose them when... We're in a logical, non-life-threatening state of mind. Mm-hmm. And also how we can be so sure <laughs> that we want something. And then in the moment, we change our minds. Yep. So obviously, life-threatening situations make your body fight, flight, or freeze. Yep. <clears throat> and you never really know how you're going to react. In fact, the next episode that they did was called In the Heat of the Moment, and it talked about what your body does in states like that, where you make decisions that you never thought you would, which is kind of funny because they didn't relate them, but they really are related, those two episodes. They are. So I wanted to have my mom on to talk about this with me because we've been through this in our family. Yes, we have personal experience. (laughs) So... As of this moment, I am in fairly good health, mind, body, and spirit, and I would never imagine being able to choose that for myself, to be able to choose to be on a ventilator, be able to choose to um, be like Terry Schiavo was, where she was in a vegetative state. Now, That's a little trickier because they would have had to withhold food, and I'm not sure exactly how that... I think... Did she have a feeding tube? It's been quite a while. I don't remember. I think she did, or she had an IV. Yeah, I can't imagine even wanting a feeding tube, even though people can absolutely live long lives with feeding tubes, and they can absolutely live long lives with other debilitating diseases and equipment. Mm Mm-hmm. I just can't imagine it for myself. And I'm sure most people say that. What what do you think? I'm positive most people say that. (laughs) (laughs) Being as uh, 
perfect example is when I was with my mother, helping her. And we talked a lot. That's, that's one thing that I was thankful for, that when we were there, we were very honest. And we talked openly about what she wanted, what she did not want, and how she wanted to live. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> she was so adamant, she did not want to be put on a trach or a ventilator. She did not want a feeding tube. I mean, we're talking, she was vehemently against it. Yeah. I mean, it was just no way it was happening. And I said, okay, I'm going to. And you were her health care I was her health care provider, yep. And mm-hmm. she, and I said, okay, it's whatever you want. I'm, I'm going to do what you want me to do. Mm-hmm. Well, she had. An aortic aneurysm. And at the time, she also had an abdominal aneurysm. And they fixed the aortic aneurysm. Rism, aneurysm. <laughs> aneurysm. Hallie's been playing with alcohol, by the way. <laughs> uh, just so you know. Um, this is going to be called the Drunk Mom Podcast. <laughs> so, anyway, we went in and she had open heart surgery. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we had discussed all these plans before she went into surgery. Well, she got into surgery and her lung collapsed. Now, yeah. I thought they didn't know about the abdominal aneurysm. They until didn't know later. about it. They no. know about both of them. Yes, they okay. knew. But they could only do one at a time. Okay, gotcha. And, but she was 80. Remember yeah. that? She was 80 years old. And But the, in otherwise good health. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. She was in excellent health. Mm-hmm. And um, there were things that I found out later that were not. Sure. I was not aware of. But, but on anyway. the outside, she looked like she was yes. in good health. Yes. She was in good health, very active. Nothing slowed her down. So she went into surgery. She had open heart surgery. Her lungs, one of her lungs collapsed during surgery. Mm-hmm. She got out of surgery, and for, now, I know there's a lot of people that have never had a trach just because their lung collapsed. Yeah. I mean, to Yeah, me, you always think of, like, the tube in your chest well, to reinflate it. You well, know, not necessarily, yeah, but they can be put on oxygen. They don't necessarily need to be ventilated. Right, or trached. Or trached, yes. Well, her doctor came in. Hmm. And his goal was on succeeding. And this was in Arizona. In Arizona, yes. Uh, he uh, was supposed to be one of the best there was. And he decided that she needed to be have a trach. She was on oxygen and doing fine as long as she was on oxygen. They took the oxygen off and, of course, her, her oxygen level dropped. Uh, so, they said... You can have a, they need to do a tracheotomy and put in a feeding tube. The two things she did not want. So. You told, she, she was told this or you were told this? What? Was she awake after the surgery and having Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So she was able to make her own decisions at this point. Yes. Yes. Which is an important part of the story. Oh, yes. She was. Totally capable of making her own decisions. Yeah. And I was not going to make any of the decisions for her unless she was incapable of doing so. 
Well, you, you can't legally. Right, I couldn't yeah. anyway. But, I mean, right. you know. So, the doctor talked to her. My brothers and I were there. And my mother looked at me. And she looked at my older brother and hit him and said, I don't want to die, looking at me. I'm going, I don't want you to die either. But she was talking about the ventilator in the feeding tube. They had convinced her that she will die if, she doesn't have if this does not happen. Well, of course she didn't want to die. Nobody wants to die. Uh, so... I talked to her, and she says, that's what she wants. And I said, whatever you want. If you want it, you got it. So, sure enough, they gave her, she put on a ventilator, had a trach, put on a ventilator, and she had a feeding tube put in. And that led to a whole other realm of crap, I should say. And she was in Phoenix. So let's put a pin in that story because I want to come back to what all of that led to. Uh -huh. But before we get there, I want to talk about her being able to make her own decisions. So you, as her healthcare power of attorney, mm -hmm. had had extensive conversations. And that's really kind of the point of what the Hidden Brain episode was about, was the husband and wife had been, and even the, the wife to her young children had mm -hmm. been adamant, don't ever let me do that. Don't ever let me get to that point. Right. And... Had Grandma not been able to make that decision, had she been unconscious, you, as her power of attorney, knowing her wishes, yeah. would have, in good faith, made the decision not to have those things. Exactly. So, it's important here to remember a few things. Number one, not everyone changes their mind. Yes. Some people will be adamant that they don't want those things until they're taking their last breath. Yes. And I would say... I don't know the statistics, but if I had to guess, it's probably 50-50. You never really know how you're going to react to something until you're in the moment. Yes. But I have and known... And when your doctor threatens you. Right. But I've known plenty of people in hospice that were adamant, regardless of their condition, that they didn't want those things. Right. I have also known people in hospice that wanted to be full code, even though they knew that their condition was terminal and they were going to die regardless of CPR. So, and your uncle is a perfect example of that also. <clears throat> well, we'll get to that. So, I just wanted to pause there and okay. say that in in good faith, if you've had these conversations, when you're picking a healthcare power of attorney, you want to make sure that they're going to honor your wishes because had she gone in and you just said, "I don't care what she thinks, give her the trach and the tube," and she came out of it and yes. was pissed. Exactly. You know, so you have to do what you think is in good faith. Yes. And you can't possibly know what's in their mind and if they've changed their mind. Yeah. So I just want to encourage people to say, continue to do what you think they want in good faith. Yes. And assume it is still what they want unless you hear otherwise. Yes. Because I don't, what I don't want is for people to hear that story and second guess their decision making on behalf of the person they're doing it for. Right. Now, that I mean, is important. Yeah. Uh, no. Once she said that she wanted it and looked at me and said she didn't want to die. <laughs> I was assuming that she thought I was going to let her die and say, no, you can't have this. Right. I had no right to do that. She was very coherent and very with it. She had every right. 
mm-hmm. to say what she wanted in her health care. So I wasn't going to say, oh, no, Mom, sorry. You cannot have a trach, and you cannot have a feeding tube. You're going to have to die. Well, no, I would never do that. <laughs> it sounds like the doctors, you were saying, I wasn't there, so it sounds like they were kind of making this threat that you will definitely die if you don't have this. Yes. Um, what I will say overall is that the medical field is not great unless they're in the specialty of palliative care or hospice. It's just now coming along that people are able to start having conversations about death and dying because they've been trained to always fix, fix, fix. Heal, heal, heal. Well, you have to be able to do something. There's yes. never an end point. And this was 15 years ago now. Yes, and I and after that, I did find out certain things about this particular doctor. Mm-hmm. His big, his whole thing was his success rate. Mm-hmm. If after this type of surgery they lived for thirty days, that was an, a success rate. So for him, he would do anything to get someone to live for thirty days. Which, you know, Which one would ridiculous. hope that you wouldn't actually do that because it's completely unethical. One would hope, but, but and, and know, it I doesn't even mean that she wouldn't have lived 30 days. Exactly. Because well, she lived like, a little past that, but you know. But I mean, it sounds like she would have regardless. Yes. Even with the oxygen. Yes. Her lung would have reinflated. And it, she, I assume it did eventually because she wasn't yeah. on the trach forever. No, no. She went, actually went to a uh, oh uh, rehab rehab for tracheotomies to get off the ventilator mm-hmm. she had to go to rehab and she was in there for like a month or more but because so, she had the trach yeah and a feeding tube mm-hmm. that as i recall led her to have problems swallowing yes so. all kinds of problems because so she, and again a pin i'm sorry i'm just going to keep throwing caveats okay. in here but that doesn't mean that you can't survive or come out the other side of having a trach. Yes. It doesn't mean that it was, you know, that it wouldn't be a good idea for someone else. Right. In this instance, this is what happened. And she could have lived with a feeding tube. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, swallowing was a big issue, and there's things I found out that I would have never allowed her. Actually, I would have told the doctor about it. And he wouldn't have done the surgery if he would have known certain circumstances about my mother. I found out later that my mother was actually bulimic, which weakened her throat and her swallowing capabilities. I did not know that until later on. She hid it. People hide this stuff from you very well. Yes. And my mother would eat like a horse. And then she'd go into the bathroom, even at a restaurant, she'd go in and be gone for 15, 20 minutes. Makes you go, hmm. But me, I didn't put one and one, two and two together. I just didn't do it because it was something I never thought of. No, it wasn't as popular or... Right. No, it was much more stigmatized and not talked about back then. Yeah. So if I would have realized then what I know now, I would have talked to the doctor. He might have still done the th- surgery... Not really sure. I can't say he wouldn't have. But uh, he didn't have all the facts either. But he didn't have the facts either. Right. So, 
you know, it is what it is. I mean, she she wanted to have it done, and we had it done because I wasn't going to say, oh, no, Mom, sorry. <laughs> so what happened, in, you know, for the rest of rest of her life the times that she got she got off the vent yes we went into there's a rehab specialty rehab in phoenix that is that weaned you off the ventilator uh and she was there for at least 30 days and i assume her lung reinflated at some point oh it was reinflated i do believe before she got there ah. but she was already on the ventilator so she had to be weaned off the ventilator gotcha and uh, the doctor she had was wonderful. He was really awesome. And um, But, yes, she got off the ventilator. But while she was in there, her whole attitude and demeanor changed. She changed as a from a logical adult to a stubborn five-year-old. And then started to role reversal. I was the parent. She was the child. And not in a dementia way. I just no, 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 not in the dementia way. She just was stubborn. We got her off the ventilator. I took her to Yuma to a rehab to get her rehab to eat. And they had to do rehab on eating. They had to do rehab on swallowing. She had to do all these exercises. She had to be able to fold her own clothes. They wanted you, they rehabbed her to get her back home which this was our pretty goal. weak at this point yes she only weighed she weighed under 100 pounds she's very thin but she didn't want to do it she didn't want to do the exercises she didn't want to do the physical therapy she didn't want to do anything so but how, she didn't want to die <laughs> yeah that's what i was going to ask how long was it between the time that she came out of surgery and said she didn't want to die to the time when she just seemed like she just gave up on life uh, that was, okay, she had surgery, then she went to rehab for at least, I think it was 30 days that she was in the respiratory rehab. Then she was in thir at least a month in the physical therapy and the other rehab. And at this point, she could not swallow. She couldn't swallow pills. Everything would choke her. She tried, but it wasn't, her esophagus was just didn't work. And uh, so she was still on the feeding tube. Uh, and then we finally got her home. But at that point, I talked to her doctor. And I told her, I'm not, I told him that she's not going home without hospice care. So within two months, she went from, you know, she had aneurysms, but she was fine otherwise. Yeah. To... I really don't have any resolve to live or function yeah. in the world. She was she wouldn't do anything. She was done. Uh, but yet, on the other hand, her mind was functional. Mm -hmm. She just didn't. She just decided she didn't want to do anything. She wanted somebody to take care of her. And I understand that after eighty years of taking care of everybody and your mother, you know that literally, literally <laughs> her mother. That she wanted to take somebody to take care of her. Feed her, bathe her, wash her, do everything. And she was totally capable her, as far as mentally. Yeah. Physically, she was so weak because she wouldn't do any of this that she couldn't do anything. Um, so I took her home. I said, I, I did take her to the hospital. She went to the hospital for, I believe she had pneumonia. 
because I came home and they called me and said, your mother has pneumonia. So I flew back right away. And then she was home. So I, she had a, a nurse. She had everything she needed. So I flew home. That's when the hospital, the nurse called and said she's in the hospital. She has pneumonia. So I flew back. Excuse me. I flew back home. Dipped back down there. And went to the hospital. And they had her on morphine. Because she was in a lot of pain. Before she was on Vicodin. Uh, because she had osteoporosis. Unbeknownst to me, she had a fractured back. And because <laughs> her bones were so weak. From that fall. Yes. And my brother and her. And anyway, that's kind of beside the point. But she was in pain. But And this I want everybody out there to understand. Please understand this and get it into your brain. When I went to the hospital... They had her on morphine. And she was doing okay. And then I went back to the hospital. I mean, I was there every day. But one day I went back and she was basically comatose. Her eyes were open, glassed over. She stared at the wall. She wouldn't answer me. She wouldn't respond. She was basically drug-induced. And I called the nurse in. I said, what is going on here? And so they had to do a chest rub on open heart surgery, which she barely reacted to. They finally got her to come around. And it's because they had a morphine patch on her. Now, mind you, my mother's under 100 pounds. And I said, what are you doing? Why is she on? I said, you take her off all this medication except for what she was on already, which was the, the uh, Percocet or whatever it was. I said, take her off all the morphine. What, did they tell you why they switched from oral to a patch? I'm getting to that. Oh, sorry. So they took her off. Well, then I got a call from the hospital saying my mother's bitching that I took her off all these drugs. I'm going, wait a minute. I did not take her off all the drugs. I took her off all, I told you to take off all the morphine and leave her with her Percocet. Well, they took everything away from her. So I went to the hospital. I was livid. I went to the hospital and kind of got in the doctor's face. In fact, I did get in the doctor's face. And I went into my mom and I said, Mom, are you in pain? No. So then I brought the nurse in. The nurse asked, what's your level of pain? Ten. Oh, Okay. I said, now I want you to listen to me. And this is what I told the nurse. I want you to listen to what she's saying to me right now. And stop asking her what her level of pain is. Her automatic answer was 10. She was programmed to say 10. I said, Mom, and the nurse, I made her stand there and listen to me. I said, Mom, what, are you in pain? No. Do you have any pain at all? No. What is your level of pain? Ten. Yeah. Ask the right questions, people. Old people have things in their brain that won't come out of their brain. You have to ask them the right question. You can't just keep this level of pain crap up. 
Ask them if they're actually in pain and how much pain they're in, not the level of pain they're on. So they gave her morphine because she kept saying pain. Even with all the morphine, they just upped it because she kept saying she was in 10. And they almost overdosed her and killed her. If I hadn't have come in, she probably would have died in the hospital. So finally, I said, that's it. I've had it. So I looked at my mother, and they will not tell her anything. They won't tell her anything. But she's dying, right? She still has this aortic aneurysm. She has the abdominal aneurysm. Oh, yes, abdominal. She's had the open heart surgery for the other one. And the, the abdominal one was growing because of the pressure, because the other one was fixed. And they said they couldn't go in and do the abdominal. And they couldn't do the abdominal. So I don't know why that was, probably because of our condition at that point. And so I looked at my, and I asked the doctors and stuff, and they wouldn't tell her anything. So I went in, and this is where honesty comes into a big play. I went into my mom, and I said, Mom, this is the deal. You stay here and die. You go home or, and die, or you go to a nursing home and die. What would you like to do? Because none of them were going to tell her her condition. Which is terrible. It was horrible. I was pissed. So she said, I want to go home. I said, got it. Let's go. Packed her up that day. Took her home. Had hospice set up, and, you know, and then she got pneumonia when she was there again. I mean, she was not doing well. She didn't do well. She just, her mind was functional. She could talk to you. Mm -hmm. But her body, physically, she was not capable. Yeah. So. Yeah, and people out there listening, if you have yourself or a loved one that has an aneurysm, especially a terminal aneurysm, an aortic or abdominal aneurysm, please talk to your doctor and make them tell you what that looks like because luckily for us, she passed away before it burst. Yes, it's quite painful, evidently. It's very fast, but yes, that's what I hear. Is it's, it's quite painful for a few minutes. So, <clears throat> and that's not something that you can premedicate for. It It's instant. So just be aware of that. Um, unfortunately, a lot of doctors don't want to tell you that bad news. You know, I've, I've had people come home on hospice and been the one to tell them what their real prognosis was. Or and been, that's not right. No, they should definitely know that. I mean, they might have heard, you know, vaguely that six months or less, but people that come on that have maybe a week, or two weeks, or a month maybe at the most. Mm -hmm. And certain diseases lend themselves to that. I mean, you kind of know, for instance, when you come off dialysis, depending on how many times a week you have it, you've likely got days to weeks. That's just the reality of it. Luckily, that one's not usually a painful death, but it's quick. And so you need to have your affairs in order and be prepared and, and really have informed consent when you're making that decision. And talk to your family. Yes. Talk. I can't enforce the importance of talking enough. I know uh, from dealing with my neighbor, Bobby, 
She did not want to bother her children. She did not want them to worry about her. I had to set her up in order to talk to her parent, her children. I had her daughter sit in the kitchen where Bobby couldn't see her. I sat down and talked to Bobby. Bobby would talk to me openly, tell me her needs, her wants, her worries, everything. But she would not tell it to her daughter or her children. They found that out through me talking to her. Yeah. You know. Um, so in the older generation, they don't want to worry their children. They've raised them. That, it, that's just how they are. But you have to talk to them. Yeah. You have to. Talk to your kids. I mean, you've been through this enough. You've God. <laughs> you've had the experience of multiple different... Well, I wish I hadn't have, but yes, I have. And, and open communication like that is so important because if somebody passes and you don't know what they wanted... Yeah. You know, even before death or even after death as far as their what they want, especially if they don't have a will, somebody needs to know what their wishes are, mm-hmm. what they want. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and it, it doesn't need to necessarily be like a huge document from no. from a lawyer unless you have some giant estate. Like, don't be like Prince right? and, and leave everything undone with no will, no right. executor. Right. If you have a lot of money, have a will. Well, really have a will regardless. Well, I mean, we're, we're going to have another episode coming up. I don't know exactly when, probably into the next year. But it's going to talk about being an executor and how that works when you have to go through probate versus if you have a will and you're an executor. And, and that sucks, too. Well, they suck both times, but... Sometimes, you know, some ways are a little easier than others to navigate the system. So So I do want to reel it back, though. As part of the will, it doesn't have to be a will, but you can have advanced directives. So what do advanced directives mean? Well, I'm pretty sure I did an episode on this early on, but let's just revisit. Some many states have a booklet called Five Wishes, and it's a really toned down layman's version of a good conversation starter of what you want and how to talk to your family about what you want. They've got scenarios. It's not very long. It's got different scenarios about if this, then that. If this, then multiple choice things that I want. And in most states, that is considered a legal document. You have to have it signed and I think witnessed. I don't think you have to have that one notarized. There are also legalese advanced directives that are very similar that basically are a version of a post form, which is to say yes or no, I don't or do want CPR or feeding tube or trach or antibiotics. I mean, those are basically what people call advanced directives or living wills is what do you want and what wishes do you want people to know if you are not able to tell them? Which is so vitally important no matter what age you are. Because what if you get in a car accident? Mm -hmm. It's not about if you get a terminal disease and then you lose your mind. What if you get hit by a bus? What if lightning strikes you? What if there's a a dog attack? A tree falls on you. (laughs) I mean, a meteor falls out of the sky. Who knows? Anything could happen. Someday we'll all be dead. But (laughs) before then, people want to know what your wishes are. Well, the nice thing about the five wishes thing mm-hmm. is there's an area there, like I'm I'm basically a DNR mm-hmm. with a caveat. Yeah. 
Okay. And we've talked about that. Yeah. I mean, um, a DNR, if you hand that to a and, medic. Then and DNR is do not resuscitate. Do not resuscitate. They will not perform CPR. Now, let's be clear. A medic will not take five wishes. A medic needs the bright green pulsed right. form, which is physician assist physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. Yes. That bright green form is the only thing that will stop a medic from giving you CPR. CPR. And even then. <laughs> well, and the nice thing about the five wishes is I, I don't want the advanced life-saving bull crap. Yeah. But there's always a but in there. Um, I've already had two heart attacks. I could have another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm fine. The only reason, the only way I would want CPR is if I could live through it. I mean, there's a lot of people that have CPR and live through it and are fine. Well, let's be careful with a lot because it's actually 20 to 30 percent that survive CPR. And that's, you know, the, the, the caveat is, is someone there when something happens? Exactly. If we find you cold. No. It's too late. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but if you're able to call out for help before. Right. Then it's possible that you could live through it and be no worse for wear right. on the other end. If I'm cold, I don't want anybody touching me. Just let me be cold. <laughs> well, depending on how cold you are, there might not be anything to be done. That's true. <laughs> <clears throat> but, uh, yeah. I it's mean, a tough one. We've talked about the realism of CPR and, you know, I... Would absolutely want to give it a try at this stage. You're only 70. Yeah. And your heart attacks have been minor. Yeah. And likely, if you were to have a heart attack like that, you it would probably be, wouldn't would, survive. Exactly. So, we, we know what the reality is. We've talked about it extensively. Yes. And I'm not going to change my mind. <laughs> and so, as... You know, when you when you get your health care power of attorney done, which you will <laughs> soon, uh, then that person, whoever it is, and all of us in the immediate family, really in Washington State, it's going to go to dad right now anyway. And you're the backup. Will know what your wishes are. Yeah. And so that's really what I want to kind of circle back to is make sure that you're communicating at a very minimum. You have things written down in case it's something after the fact, something... Somewhere that someone's going to look, that they're going to find that kind of thing. Um, or let people know where it is. Maybe you have a safe. Maybe you have a box that is in a certain room that you keep somewhere that's got all your legal papers. Great. Just make sure the person that's going to make those decisions know where, knows where that is. Yeah. The last part of what I want to talk about is in the end of that episode, it talks about the lady that went on the ventilator. Uh, she... Spoiler alert, if you haven't heard it, um, she ended up with ALS. And that's why she ended up on a ventilator. ALS is a terrible disease. There's a couple different forms of it. But in the end, she chose to be on a ventilator. Not everyone with ALS ends up on a ventilator. Just FYI. But she chose for that to happen. And they ended up coming home and caring for her with a ventilator basically with their kitchen turned into an ICU or their you know dining room or something but 
<clears throat> it was very traumatic for the family to have to deal with the suctioning and the not being able to breathe and all of these kind of things. And, and they really do. I like the way they get into that because it's reality and people need to hear it. But what they talked about was when she was ready or when the family or however that went down um, came to choose the benefit of hospice care. Again, it always makes me nervous being in hospice care when I hear stories that can perpetuate myths that are already out there. So obviously I don't want to take away from the story that I heard. That was clearly that their experience and they actually really benefited from hospice and it was great for them. However, what they said was that she went into a hospice facility. So number one, that's pretty rare. Most hospices do not have a facility. Uh, most of the time, if you were in an area that had that, you know, a hospice, it's not going to have somewhere where you can go in and, and remove the vent and wait. That's something you'd end up in the hospital for. Number two, they said that she was on a morphine drip. Now, you mentioned morphine. That was a patch. That was a whole other circumstance. Mm -hmm. But morphine is a scary drug for people. Even in the smallest doses, the word morphine terrifies people because they immediately think of death. And they also think about, you know, combat medics, for example. If you have any military experience, you're thinking people on the battlefield got shot up with morphine so they could die without pain. I mean, it's, it's just a scary drug when you're talking about hospice care. When I heard morphine drip, I'm like... <laughs> Well, great. Now people again are going to be convinced that morphine kills you. That's not what they said on the podcast. I want to be clear, but it's just another one of those things where you continue to hear things like this. And it sounds like hospice is only for the last days and they put you on morphine until you die. And that's not the majority of hospice care. Yes, morphine's used to treat symptoms, many different symptoms. In fact, it's pretty good for shortness of breath. Yeah. But almost never in a normal rural hospice or normal hospice that's not in a facility, are you going to have a morphine drip? That's not how that works. Usually it's a liquid and you're giving it in an oral syringe. So, you know, that's number one. Morphine patches even. I, I can't even remember the last time I heard about us using a morphine patch. Well, now this was, like you said, 15 years ago. It was. And, and it was in a hospital setting. And what we do use sometimes is a fentanyl patch, which can also be scary because all you hear about in the news oh, yeah. is fentanyl. fentanyl you can't you. even touch it or look at it. You'll die. Yeah. So that's also very scary and needs a lot of education. The kind of fentanyl they're talking about is about 100 times more strong than what we use, but it's still scary. It's a scary word, and it should be. Yeah. You, sh you should handle it with care. Um, you know, so it's just all these myths and that, of course, when she came off the ventilator, it was only a few days and she died because she was on a ventilator, not because she was on hospice care. So yeah. I just want to clarify and reiterate that although, yes, people do come on to hospice late for many reasons, maybe it's their disease because it's very fast. Maybe it's because they came off dialysis. Maybe it's because they were in denial until the end. Maybe it's because they think hospice is only for death. Yes. There's so many Not reasons. true at all. I've dealt with hospice a lot in my life. Not that I wanted to. <laughs> you know, but their services and their care and their people are amazing. It, the family especially needs it. 
Yeah, um, it's holistic care, not just for the patient. Right, right. It's for the whole family. And, and the morphine and all that stuff, if you don't want it, you don't have to take it. That's very true. You know, I mean... We will offer you everything we have at our disposal yeah. to help your symptoms. We will not push it on you. We will suggest things that might help. Well, that's... You're in the plan, you know, you, the patient, or you, the healthcare power of attorney, yeah. or guardian, or however that is, are going to be the ones that make the final decision. You are a part of the plan of care. No hospice should ever come in and say, you will take this. Right. If you have a hospice that says that, get out. Yeah. Find and, another one. And Move. The, the medical power of attorney, which last time was me. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's been me every time. <laughs> Just too many times. It was for a friend of ours. Uh, he needed to be in hospice, but the only thing he knew about hospice is it had to do with death. You're yeah. dying immediately. If you go on hospice, it means I'm dying. No, it doesn't mean you're dying. It means you mean... You need specialty care, mm-hmm. care that you can't give at home, but you want to be at home. And he still thought that, even knowing me and my yes. work. Yes, he still thought that's all it meant. Well, if I go in hospice, I'm going to die. Yeah. Well, he was first of all, he was in total denial, and finally, I think when he finally accepted hospice, is when he actually not that he was dying, but he accepted his diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He accepted what was going on with him. And that took a long time. It did take a long time. And and he finally, he did pass, yes. And he, but he passed at home. And he passed comfortably. Very comfortably and very quiet. And he just went to sleep, which was awesome. Yeah. So, but, you know, I mean, there's, there's those people that think like that. They don't understand hospice. Well, and there's people that are in denial until the very end. And that's their right. Yeah. You yeah, know, they can not choose to go into hospice. Not everyone goes into hospice. No. I think I want to say it's 40 to 50% of people that die of natural causes or that are eligible for hospice care actually use hospice care, mm-hmm. which is actually a higher percentage than I thought. We just heard about that, at least in the county that I work in. Um, it's pretty high. I, I actually thought it was lower, honestly. Mm. So... I expect that number to rise with the increased awareness of hospice and the increased awareness of baby (laughs) boomers getting older. (laughs) Well, there's also doctors that don't believe in hospice and will talk a patient out of hospice, which is what happened to this gentleman. Yes. His doctor did not like hospice. The doctor, I was in the office when the doctor said, all they do is drug you up. And make you so you can't function. That is so not true. It's not even funny. But he did not like hospice. He didn't know anything about hospice. He didn't want to find out about hospice. He was one of those doctors that was going to make you freaking suffer. Because he was playing God with you. Yeah. And luckily, that was a specialty doctor, and his primary care doctor. Yes, his primary was able care to doctor. Talk to him. Yes, his primary care doctor told him you need to be on hospice. He was dying. Two of them. Finally, one of them he really trusted and liked. Talked to him, mm-hmm. and he said okay, because he said okay before, and then he changed his mind because of the, this other specialty doctor. Right. 
you know. Yeah, I remember. Uh, it was very frustrating. Mm. So, anyway. All right. Well, we've already been on longer than I planned, right? as it always happens when we chat. So, thank you for coming on and sharing your drunk mom experience. You're welcome. <laughs> My daughter got me drunk. <laughs> Uh, final words on advanced directives and things like that. I need to do one. Everybody needs to do one. I know I need to do one, and I'm bad because Allie's been bitching at me for years to do one. <laughs> I need to get it done, yes. You yes. need to get it done. You need to talk to your kids. You no, need... she's talking to you because I already have it done. Yeah, she, I'm talking to the audience out there. <laughs> You need to get it done. I don't care how old you are. Get it done. Talk to your parents. Parents, talk to your children about what you want. Even if you don't get the advanced directive done, talk, talk, talk. That's the most important thing because if nobody knows what you want, that's going to be the hardest part in the family if you should happen, something happens to you. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's too much confusion. Nobody knows anything. They'll start arguing. There'll be disputes. Well, mom didn't want this. Mom didn't want that. Dad <clears throat> never do that. Or I don't believe in this, yeah, even though it's what they wanted. Right. You need to talk. Yeah. Talk loudly, <laughs> whether you're young or old, because you could be dead tomorrow in a car accident. How many young people get in a car accident? They don't yeah. talk about that. Of course, they're young. They're, they're immortal. Mm-hmm. I found out about mortality really young. I became a widow at 36 years old. Yeah. Talk about it. Why should Please. they talk about it? Because someday we'll, we'll all, all be, be dead. dead. <laughs>